I read a little story this week in a devotional. I thought it was pretty cute. I thought I'd tell you guys. There was a boy who was handicapped and he was in a wheelchair and uh, he had a dog. He owned this dog and uh, he was going up a ramp and as he was going up the ramp, he had gone up and he got up and got a ways. It was a very large, uh, large ramp apparently and when he got up there, he, uh, he started to come back down. He lost control. I think he had uh, some kind of malfunction with his, uh, with his uh, wheelchair. And as he started coming back down, uh, you come to realize back down meant rolling out into a busy street. So as he comes back down and he's gaining steam and he doesn't know what to do, his dog sees the problem. His dog comes, runs, jumps in front of the wheelchair, the wheelchair smashes into the dog, saves the boy's life, breaks the dog's leg, and the dog almost dies because of it. Now there, ladies and gentlemen, is a reliable friend, right? A reliable friend. And today we're going to talk a little bit about reliability. We're going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. What's kind of interesting, when he shifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, there's kind of a big shift. So you remember from last week, we was talking about chapter 7, and in chapter 7, he was talking about their great response to the severe letter and how they had turned their ways, right? And they were doing so much better. And now he goes into this kind of problem that they'd had. They sort of started something they hadn't finished. So what that happened was they'd started a collection of money of some kind, and we'll see this throughout chapter 8, and the Corinthians failed to follow through on the promise that they made. And he actually talks about this for quite a while at chapter 8 and chapter 9. So if you wonder why for the next few weeks I seem to be talking about money every week or some kind of giving, it's not my fault, okay? I, I didn't really plan it this way. This is what Paul's talking to them about. I think we're going to get a lot of principles that don't have much to do with giving or tithing that I think we're going to be able to find as we go through this chapter that we can go that we can apply to our life. So as we think about this, I'd like you to look at this map here just for a second with me. You see Corinth there on the map. We, had, we looked at the map a few more times when we were in 1 Corinthians. Remember, it's on kind of that little strip of land. Paul's in Macedonia, which is north of there. Okay, this is where he is probably at. We think he might be in Philippi. We're not really sure where he's at when he's writing this particular letter. And then you see where Jerusalem is there on the bottom right of the map I'm showing you. So we're going to have kind of three groups that we're going to talk about in this letter. The Corinthians, who of course Paul is writing this letter to. Paul himself with the Macedonians. So he's talking about the Macedonians. And then he's talking about the people in Jerusalem. Because what we think is going on at this particular time is there is a famine in Jerusalem. Now, we don't really know much about famine today in, uh, in America and really most parts of the world, right? I, I read an interesting article the other week about Brexit. You know, if you don't know what Brexit is, good luck trying to figure it out. But uh, they realized if all the, they're having this thing, the, the Great Britain is trying to figure out new trade laws. I'm just going to try to simplify this. They're trying to figure out new trade laws, and they realize something. We don't actually grow most of our own food. And you know, not only do we not grow it, when, when we order it, we like have it kind of like on the way when we need it. Because you know, we don't store a bunch of food in warehouses, right? It's kind of like 
on its way at the time we need it. That's more efficient, right? There's less waste, less paying for storage. It's, you know, Walmart's kind of the one that got really, really good at this, and everyone's kind of followed their example. So, so they go, well, suddenly, if we, we don't have any trade agreements, and that food's no longer, like, on a ship or whatever on its way, what are we going to eat? Right? What are we going to eat? And I'm sure Great Britain will figure it out. I don't think they're going to starve or anything like that. But it's kind of an interesting problem. Like, for the first time in likely many, many years, Great Britain has had to think, like, huh, how are we going to feed ourselves? In the ancient world, they had bigger problems. It wasn't just a matter of politics on whether they were going to do trade agreements or whatever. They actually just like, oh, it didn't rain this year. And so we're like, half of us are going to starve to death or whatever percentage because not going to be able to eat. And Jerusalem seems to be in this particular problem. And so that is what this collection is about. So as we go through chapter 8, Paul is talking about this collection being taken up for the people who are going through this famine, we think, in Jerusalem. So verse 1 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he's saying, you did a great job responding to the letter, chapter 7. You know, I'm so glad that things are getting better. We're coming back together. But I also want you to know about what has gone on in Macedonia. Now, notice it says, about the grace of God that has been given, who has he, who is he giving credit to here? He uses the passive voice. He's giving God the credit for what the Macedonians have done. And of course, the perfect tense is also used. So he's what God has done in the Macedonians and what he's continuing to do within the Macedonians. We go to verse 2. It says, For in a severe test of affliction, so the Macedonians were also going through some kind of affliction, possibly persecution, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So what's going on with the Macedonians? They have affliction. They're also dealing with poverty. And what has happened to them? They have given generously. You know, it may be very well that the Macedonians, because they were also going through a difficult time, also would know even more what the people in Jerusalem would go through, right? Sometimes it's easier to identify with people when you've gone through that pain yourself. You know, I think of someone who's maybe been abused by their parents or something, and if they ask me about it, you know, I could just never say, I understand. I do not understand. I do not understand. I'm glad I don't understand, but I do not, right? And so if you go through something like that, it's often wonderful to have someone who's also gone through that same pain that also seemed difficult with you. And it seems like the Macedonians, because they also were struggling with poverty, were really able to connect with the people that were being having trouble in Jerusalem. So they gave generously. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. See, he didn't make them do it. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, it doesn't seem that he even thought the Macedonians would be one to give. Like, they were already poor. They were already going through a struggle. It doesn't seem like he even really asked them, right, of their own accord. 
They were already having difficulty, so why would he go to them? I remember traveling around with the, our ensemble when I was in high school. I was in choir, and we had this ensemble you had to try out for. Thankfully, it was a really small school, so I was able to make it, and uh, we would travel around, and we'd sing. And I remember Mr. Nihilus always telling us, you know, often it's the small churches that give the most. Often it's the small, small churches that give the most. And sometimes we think, oh, well, I need the people that are rich. They're the ones that are generous. And it's not always true, right? And the Macedonians, they were generous even though they also had their needs. Go on to verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They begged. We want to be able to help. We want to be able to take part. We want to have this opportunity to see them and their pain eased. Verse 5, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You know, the by the will of God's kind of interesting phrase. It actually seems, in the way the phrase the will of God is used in other passages, is actually kind of an indication that they agree with the ministry Paul's doing and the ministry he's doing there with Jerusalem, and so they're following his apostleship by the authority of his apostleship by giving. Now, we don't have apostles today, so there's not a parallel there, but it seems like the Corinthians were having a little bit of trouble with Paul, right? They, they weren't always seeming to do what he said, as we talked about, why he had to write this severe letter. And this seems to be kind of another indication that, hey, the Macedonians, they followed the will of God as me as an apostle, you know, hint, hint, maybe you should as well. Verse 6, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. You know, Titus was the right guy to send back to them. He was qualified for the task because, right, he's been to Corinth. He knows the people. He knows their situation. And he, when he recently visited Corinth, he was refreshed. You know, on Wednesday nights, we uh talking about Baptist history and there's the guy, and you know, the, the, there's some famous people that everyone tends to know, and and you may know that the way Baptist missions, or the Baptist denomination, kind of began, or in America, the primary reason it came together was for missions. There was missionaries that needed financial aid, and they these Baptist churches finally got together. They finally started working together so they could support foreign missions. That was like the really the main purpose they got together. They were kind of independent prior to that. And there's this character. That is not as famous as others, right? We think of some of the, the really famous one. There's another one, and I, I'm now blanking his name. I want to say his name was Rice, and his last name was Rice. And his job was to go around to each church and raise money. And so he was go, you travel, you travel, you raise money for each churches. And you know what? If it weren't for him, like living on the road every day for like much of his life, there's almost no question there would be no Baptist denomination. Right? So the missionaries were great, right? The missionaries were great, and they kind of get a lot of the publicity. And look, they led all these people to Christ, and look how great they were. Oh, the guy that was on the road going church to church that most of us don't care of, I can't even remember his name. I already forgot his name in my illustration, right? That's how famous he is. He is likely as big a catalyst as anyone else in making the Baptist denomination exist. And so Titus is this type 
of character, this type of person. His role here is extremely important. You have to have someone who's willing to go, willing to travel, willing to connect. And this connection is important. When we think about giving, when we think about supporting things, it's always wonderful to have a personal connection, isn't isn't it? And Titus provided that personal connection. Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, once again, he's, he's, he's speaking kindly of them, and all your love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. You're doing so well in these other areas, we need to get this one shirred up as well. I say, this is not a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now, I've thought about this, and this was my first reaction when I was reading this verse. You don't have to do this, but if you really had any love in your heart, you would, which sounds a lot like you have to do this. Right? That's what, that's, what I, that's what I first thought. And I thought about it again. I thought about it again. You know, it says it's not a command. And I, and I think, I, that's what it says, so I believe that's true. And I think the reason he says prove your love is to say, well, just because you didn't give, does that mean, in this situation, does that mean you don't love? No, but this would prove your love. So it's not exist as if your love would not exist if you didn't give. It's that you prove love. And I, I hope I'm right about that. It makes me think of this. You know, As we come to situations in our lives, we are bombarded with opportunities to give, right? I mean, just there's like unlimited, you know? For, I, mean, I just think of all the organizations that, that raise money, and many of them are good. Maybe some are bad. I, I don't know. I don't vet them all or anything. But there are so, so many opportunities to give. And you know, we don't have to give to every single one of them, right? We can't. We can't possibly give to every single one of them. So just because maybe there's a worthy cause we don't give to doesn't mean we don't love, right? But if we do give to like none of them, maybe maybe then starting to become a problem here. And so I don't think he's saying you have to do this or you don't love anybody if you don't, but he's saying this is a way you can prove your love. I think it's a way they prove their love in a way that's unique because their prior commitment that they had made. Verse 9, for you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, the Macedonians showed great sacrifice, didn't they? They were poor, and they showed this wonderful sacrifice and example. But then he kind of pulls out what is the ultimate example. You had Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all-powerful, all-knowing. And what does he do? Humbles himself. He becomes a man. He's born to a poor guy, the kind of a regular old blue-collar job. And then the people that he came to save hate him. He heals them, they hate him. They hate him more. They torture him. They kill him. You talk about sacrifice. You say, well, what are you willing to sacrifice for God? The Macedonian example is nice. But what's the real 
ultimate example of sacrifice is Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ. And he uses this as an example. Christ became poor that you might become rich. You guys should also sacrifice in order to help the people in Jerusalem. And in this manner, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desire to do it. See, in a time past, a year ago, they started this work. See, they had already made some kind of commitment. So when I say, I'm not commanding this, but this would really prove your love, we're not just talking about saying, well, you never promised to do this. This was something they said they were going to do. They made a commitment. And so if they were wanted to prove their love, they needed to stick with what they said they were going to do. They don't, they don't have to. But if you truly desired it, you said you desired it, you should stick through and do it. Verse 11 So now finish doing what is well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by what, by your completing it out of what you have. You know, willingness is great, but if willingness never turns into action, I'm not really sure that was really willingness. I'm willing. I'd be willing, but... Say you're willing all you want. Until you do, until you do, willingness are just words. Verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness. So what he's saying here is, what I'm trying to do, I'm not trying to take money from you or make, compel you or force you or make you to give money so then you're hurting and then the people of Jerusalem are fine. I'm saying you're doing, at this point, you don't have a famine, right? So I am trying to, we were saying your excess, what you don't have to have, we are taking from you. Not taking, excuse me, that's the wrong word. We're asking you to give so that the people of Jerusalem they do not have to be in poverty. This is fairness. It actually, in some translations, it uses the term equality. See, so I'm not saying that you should be hurting and they should be fine. I'm saying you both should be doing well. Verse 14, for your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. That may be fairness. You know, there may be a famine in Corinth one day. Maybe something will happen there, and you'll need the people of Jerusalem to be there for you. You know, having friends, having people that will be there for us when we need that help is worth more than gold, right? You can't buy friends. You can't buy friends. You can try. They usually stick as long around as long as the money is there. And so you're in need. They're in need, and one day maybe you'll be in need. Then he makes a quote, and he says, "As it is written, 
Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And I'm going to read the story that this is from. Now, some of you probably know this story. It's from Exodus chapter 16, so hopefully this is familiar to some, but maybe it's it's for you new. I'm just going to read it in a paraphrase. It says, Exodus chapter 16, On the 15th day of the second month, after they had left Egypt, the whole company of Israel moved from Elam to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. The whole company of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron there in the wilderness. The Israelites said, Why didn't God let us die in comfort in Egypt, where we had lamb stew and all the bread we could eat? You've brought us into the wilderness to starve us to death the whole company of Israel. Okay, so if any of you have read the story of Israel, this is a familiar refrain, right? Why have you done this to us? And in this particular case, they have no food. God said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread down from the skies for you. The people will go out and gather each day's ration. I'm going to test them to see if they'll live according to my teaching or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they have gathered, it will turn out to be twice as much as their daily ration. Of course, they weren't allowed to gather on the Sabbath, so they gather double the day before. Moses and Aaron told the people of Israel, this evening you know that it is God who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of God. Yes, he's listening to your complaints against him. You haven't been complaining against us, you know, but against God. And Moses said, since it will be God who gives you meat for your meal in the evening and your fill of bread in the morning, it's God who will have listened to your complaints against him. Who are we in this? You haven't been complaining to us You've been complaining to God. And Moses instructed Aaron, tell the whole company of Israel, come near to God. He's heard your complaints. And Aaron gave out the instructions to the whole company of Israel. And they turned to face the wilderness. And there it was, the glory of God in the cloud. God spoke to Moses, I've listened to the complaints of the Israelites. Now tell them, at dusk you will eat meat, and at dawn you will eat your fill of bread, and you'll realize that I'm God, your God. That evening, quail flew and uncovered the camp. In the morning, there was a layer of dew all over the camp, and the layer of dew had lifted. There on the wilderness was a fine, flaky something. It's an interesting translation, isn't it? Fine, flaky something. Fine as frost on the ground. The Israelites took one look and said to one another, What is this? That they had no, they had no idea what it was. And then we get to our quote. So Moses told them, it's the bread God has given you to eat, and these are God's instructions. Gather enough for each person, about two quarts per person. Gather enough for everyone in your tent. The people of Israel went to work, started gathering, some more, some less, but they measured out what they had gathered. Those who had gathered more had no extra, and those who gathered less weren't short. Each person had gathered as much as they needed. And this is where the quote comes from. Whoever's gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. And so in the situation of Israel, what was going on is they were going out and they were gathering this bread that looked like dew or whatever, and they only gathered enough for themselves and they were done for that day that eaten. And he makes this quote and he says, see, we need only enough. And if Jerusalem does not have enough, And you have excess, so you should help the people in Jerusalem. You know, 
I think the how to help in financial ways is one of the hardest things to do, you know? You think, am I super rich as an American? It's like, oh yeah, sure, I'm rich, but if I don't have a car, I literally can't have a job. I mean, you basically have to have a car to have a job in America, certainly in Wichita, right? So you say, if you don't have a car, you go from feeling rich because so many people in other places don't have one to like dead broke because you can't have a job and then it all spirals out of control, right? So I think it's complicated, but you know what I think is not that complicated? I think we can know for sure that we all need this type of person in our life. We need the reliable friend. We need the reliable friend. I'd like you to think about this morning. Are you a reliable friend? Are you a reliable friend? When people call, are you not only willing to answer, But when you say you'll help, you'll help. You can't say yes to everything, of course. You can't say yes to everything. But when you say yes, are you good for it? Are you good for it? You know, the Corinth, they've been doing so well. They, they respond to this severe letter. But man, there's nothing more painful than people make you a promise. They say they're going to do something. And they're not there. I think if a dog can sacrifice so much for the boy he's taken care of, I think we as brothers and sisters in Christ should be willing to be reliable with one another. When you say you're going to be there, when you say you're going to do something, do it. Do it. You know, when Christ promised that he would provide a way of salvation in the Old Testament, Aren't you glad he kept his promise and sent his son, Jesus Christ? He said he would send his son. He said a savior would be there. And he was. Christ was the ultimate reliable friend. And I hope this morning you would take that example and be that reliable friend to one another. Let's pray. Though we just thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for all you've done for us. We just thank you that we could rely on you, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And, and we know that we can trust that. We know that you will come through. Lord, I just pray that in our hearts, we would think to ourselves and say, Lord, I want to be a sanctuary for you. I want to be pure and holy. I want to be the kind of person that when I give my word, I am good for it. That when I say I'll do it, nobody questions. We love you. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.